I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with David Kovar. David is the president and founder of Kovar & Associates, where he leads the development of URSA, or Unmanned Robotics Systems Analysis. It's a suite of tools designed to collect, integrate, analyze, and present UAV-related data for many purposes, including fleet management, criminal investigations, failure analysis, and predictive analysis. He also leads the firm's consulting practice, which addresses UAV cybersecurity and UAV threat management. David founded the practice of UAV forensics in 2015 and one of the leading practitioners in the country. David has worked in digital forensics and cybersecurity since the mid-90s, and prior to founding his own company, he led ENY's U.S. Incident Response Program. David earned his bachelor's from Dartmouth College in computer science and will receive a master's from the Fletcher School at Tufts in international affairs this summer. David's master's thesis is Defending Against UAVs Operated by Non-State Actors. In this episode, we discuss his early transition from IT to information security, good incident response planning, team building and communications, the development of Analyze MFT, giving back to the community, the emerging drone security and analysis field, founding a cybersecurity company, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. David, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I am doing well, and thank you very much for the opportunity, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you and with your audience. Great. Thank you. So now you've been in, I guess, you know, what we would say is traditional IT for some time, but at some point the path led into information security. Maybe talk about a little bit about your background and how you got started and, and how you ended up in more of the InfoSec space. So back in about 95, I started doing IT consulting in Silicon Valley and eventually stood up my own consulting company, mostly servicing uh, startups in that area. Um, and so we did traditional build servers, all that sort of stuff. But people would start asking us for firewall configurations. Okay, that's easy. Um, and then they would start saying, okay, now you know, we're getting all these alerts from the firewall. Now what? And that was like still pretty easy. And then somebody came to me and said, uh, we got hacked into, and can you help me figure out what happened? And it's like, probably. And I started figuring it out. And A, we were successful in figuring out, okay, here's how they got in, uh, here's what they got, and here's how we can demonstrate that. And then the second thing that I realized is that this is a lot of, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a really interesting challenge. It's a way of combining some disparate skill sets um, and solving some really challenging problems for clients. And at the time, you know, the cybersecurity industry was very small. And so it wasn't like, okay, I can go make a really good living doing this. It was more of a, I can apply some really interesting skill sets to a challenging problem that motivates me. And so that led me into doing my own forensics consulting. And then I've, I took a stint doing e-discovery I work for guidance software doing professional services for them. Um, I then uh, spent uh, three years doing incident response and digital forensics for Ernst & Young, which was, which was really an opportunity to bring it all together. So I, we were doing uh, really interesting investigations for some really high-profile clients. We were building up some complex incident response systems. We were looking at policy. We were helping people audit their incident response uh, profiles, all this sort of stuff. And I got to work with some absolutely phenomenal people. And it really broadened my horizons and showed me that there are a lot of different ways of being successful in cybersecurity. And there are a lot of great people working in the industry. And why would you say you gravitated more towards the forensics and IR as opposed to maybe some of the other disciplines in in security? Um, I like solving problems. I like investigating circumstances and trying to 
determine with a high degree of probability, hey, here's what happened. Um, you know, some people love solving crossword puzzles. Um, I love solving this sort of what happened. And I've got a, I, I, I'm also a professional search and rescue volunteer, essentially over about the same 15, 20 years. And it, it's a similar sort of satisfaction. I want to find out what happened to that missing person. I want to follow a series of clues that leads me and the people I work with to that person, and I want to bring closure for that person or their family. And I want to do the same thing in uh, cybersecurity, incident response, and digital investigations. I want to work with those really high-performing teams of people that have a very good understanding of, here's our mission, here are our objectives, um, here's how we're going to split the job up so we can get the job done in a very efficient, uh, very accurate manner, and then deliver some really high quality results for, in this case, the client. And so the, it's, it's the investigative challenge and it's really the high performing teams. I love, I really love working um, with some really talented people. And, and you've been in this circumstances, you're know, like, the big challenge there and everybody sort of looks at it. You talk briefly through, okay, here's how we're gonna divide this up. And everybody just goes off and executes. And then, you know, as they need something from somebody else, they communicate that you're feeding information back and forth and the whole picture starts coming together. And it's, it's just a natural progression. I mean, obviously you spent a lot of time training and gaining experience. So it's a natural progression, but it's just like high performing team solving problems. And that motivates the heck out of me. What are some of the things that you look for in your team members when you are trying to put together? Because obviously, you and I have both been in the situations where you get those, you get the call. It's it's late late on a Friday always, um, and it's it's some kind of fog of war. It's not really clear what's going on, and you have to start getting boots on the ground, and you have to try to start assembling that IR team to deploy. What what are some of the key elements that you look for in your teammates to really be able to execute? Um, I, I usually look at two sort of phases of people, and oddly enough, this applies to search and rescue and to incident response. Um, the first people in, I mean, I, I, try, I try to think of who are the first two or three people who've got to be on a plane right now or who've got to be on the phone or on email right now to figure out what's going on. Um, and I want those people to be available. Um, they need to be uh, well-educated. They need to be flexible. They need to be calm. They need not get riled by a client who just, you know, potentially lost hundreds of thousands of records or whatever. Um, and they really need to have a good understanding of the width and depth of an incident response and investigation because those are the people we depend on for getting a really good understanding of here's the challenge that's facing us and thus what are the right resources that are going to be used for actually going off and then resolving the problem for the client. And then that's the second group of people. Uh, you know, once that first group of people has understood the problem and understand how we're gonna go about solving it, then they need to be able to reach back and get that second group of people to get engaged either on the ground or remotely for working together and solving it. And all of those people need to have a variety of skill sets there needs to be a certain amount of overlap because sometimes, you know, either the problem will shift and you need to shift with the problem or a resource is not available and you need to fill in. So everybody should have a good understanding of, uh, you know, digital forensics, but certain people want to specialize in malware. Other people want to specialize in managing the incident. Other people want to specialize in doing this sort of social media analysis to put together other things. You need to have that sort of cooperative team. Gotcha. And, you know, it, this is kind of a baited question because this has yeah. come up before in the past, but I'm going to say, you know, how, how important is communication skills um, outside of the technical skills when, when, with these teams? Uh, very. Um, people need to understand. If, if all the information that you're learning um, and your part of the investigation um, stays locked within your head or it is communicated in such a fashion that it does not get properly assimilated by the rest of the team, then no matter how talented you are or how good your efforts are, therefore not. So in some ways, I'll take somebody who needs a little bit more management and I might need to go backfill some of the work they did 
if they're clearly communicating what they've accomplished and what they didn't accomplish and what remains to be done over somebody who's an absolute rock star, but it turns out that they had a crucial piece of the problem two days ago and for whatever reason, either they didn't tell us or didn't tell the rest of the team or they told the rest of the team in such a way that it's like, okay, that was just a really irritating and it didn't sink in. Um, so you, you, you really need to be able to communicate, but the communication is a two edged or two sided. Um, everybody else needs to be receptive as well. So you can have somebody who's really talented and really communicates well, but if some of the other people listening are either caught up in their own work, um, or they're not receptive to that particular individual or they're not receptive to the message that individual is communicating, um, then the communication problem is now on the receiver's end of it as well. And so it, you need to look at all of those aspects of communication. And then there's an underlying technical part, so you got to look at your tools. But this goes back to a fundamental uh, thing that I and others express in the community. It's about people, processes, and technology. Um, if you've got all the greatest technology in the world, uh, it doesn't matter how good your people are. If you've got great technology, but you really haven't figured out the process for using the people and the technology, it doesn't matter. So given of those three things, I'll take the right people because then I can use them to build the process and they can, you know, if it happens to be a whiteboard rather than Slack, they'll get the job done. Yeah, it's finding out what you how what's the best uh, communication medium for the teams at time. Um, and, and the one thing I always try to express to people, you know, there's the, the three key D's of incident response that you have to follow. And in forensics is documentation, documentation, and documentation, <laughs> because, you know, it's, you know, three days later, you're not going to remember what you're doing. And if you're moving too fast to document, you're probably just moving too fast. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've got a poor documentation system, it's like you're doing your after action review. And it's like, oh, shoot, we knew what the compromised host was, you know two days into this thing and but we didn't realize it for another week it's like oh man that hurts yeah and you know one of the things that you, you touched on earlier was you know you, you work with organizations kind of audit their ir programs did you see that there was any maybe some kind of common mistakes that they had you know pre-breach that they had in their programs that you you found maybe uh, you know, over and over again, maybe it's some kind of meta analysis that you'd say, Hey, wow, this is, this is something that most organizations really need to have in place. I think a common problem was that there was a perception that a problem was resolved, but no one actually verified it. So there are a couple of different examples of this. Um, you've got, a red team that goes off and conducts attack and pen against your environment. And you know that they're testing this group of servers for these vulnerabilities or your vulnerability management programs feeding them vulnerabilities or whatever. And so you've got some expectation that they're actually going through and exercising this, but it turns out that somebody rescoped um, the servers down smaller because they didn't want to affect some production server that was crucial for some rollout. And that's the production server that wasn't tested, and that's the one that got compromised. So that's an example. Um, another one is that uh, somebody stands up an incident response program, and they lay out the charter, they lay out all of the doc stuff in the document, they lay out roles and responsibilities, but they never really did the kickoff meeting and then some of the follow-on meetings to make sure that everybody understood their role. And so the incident comes along, they declare an incident, they stand up the war room, and people don't show up. It's like, oh, wait, oh, I'm that person from the legal department that should show up. Okay, let me get over there type of thing. And then the one that really frustrated me was, and this happened in multiple examples, is that somebody got breached um, an investigation was done. Um, the mechanism, uh, how they got in, uh, was identified. You develop a plan for remediate, not just remediating, you know, the breach, but addressing the fundamental problem. And six months later they get hacked again and it's the exact same mechanism. And it's like, you know, they, they came back in the same way. It's like, what happened? It's like, Oh, we put together a program, but, 
you know, it's a Six Sigma process and we had to get everybody to buy in and we expect that actually to be closed out sometime next year. It's like, all right, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's the fundamental issue. It's, it's like IT, security and IT. They're not profit centers. And so getting people to emphasize that these things need to be addressed, the only way we really get the budget and the attention and the people required to do it in some circumstances is when somebody else gets breached and it's like, Oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I, or we get breached. And then all of a sudden for the next six months, there's plenty of funding. Um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate and I understand why it happens. Um, it's a false sense of security. It's a false, uh, you know, financial analysis. It's like, Oh, if we don't spend a million dollars on the security program, this year, you know, that means that there's more profit, there's more shareholder value, but the, the potential downside of not investing a million this year is, you know, multiple millions of, you know, investigative expenses, but also loss of public uh, respect, which is hard to quantify and hard to measure. Yeah, that's one of the, the questions I like to kind of checkmate some of the C-suite and, and people in the business units when it comes to a lot of this. It's like, okay, if you don't want to spend the money, I get it. You might not have a budget, but how much are you willing to lose? And when yeah. I put it back into their court on that, they usually like to to watch them actually, I like to do it in the room to watch them actually get uncomfortable because they don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. it, it, but it's a reality is that security, you need to carve out that, that portion of it and, and build in the metrics to figure out, okay, well, what's it, you know, what's it going to cost and how, what's it going to save us? And, and that's the, that's a classic risk or cost analysis. And that one of the answers to risk analysis is, okay, we're going to accept that risk. And so they should be prepared to answer, okay, you know, we're willing to afford to lose, you know, $300,000 that it would cost to investigate the incident and a little bit of, you know, public respect. Um, so, you know, if they've at least, they can accept that, but they have to have at least thought through that to accept it. Right. And one of the things that we're going to kind of pivot a little bit, but that, that I remember you developing and have now used for over years was analyze MFT MFT. <laughs> and, uh, how did you decide to do that? Cause I remember, I remember at the time when you kind of did it, but I kind of wanted the listeners to hear, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of jumping into the deep end of, of starting to develop a, a tool essentially. So a lot of people will say, how do I go learn a language? And, you know, knowing how to write in Perl or Python or something else is a very valuable tool for anybody doing digital forensics or incident response because you want to glue tools together, you want to do your own analysis, et cetera. So, you know, how do I learn a language? And the, my best example to people is find a problem that interests you and then write a tool to address that problem. And so at the time, there were some other tools out there for analyzing MFT, but there were errors in them. They were poorly supported. And it's like, okay, I need to, I mean, MFT is a valuable source of information. I need to go analyze these things. Let me go solve the problem. Um, and so I really learned how the MFT was structured in depth. I learned how to research digital forensics artifacts because um, there's no one true document that says, here's what an MFT looks like. Um, and I learned how to write Python multiple times because I wrote the first pass of it and it worked, but it really wouldn't support uh, adding new features to it terribly well. Um, so then I went off and rewrote it again. And it's been a, that particular program has been a tremendous opportunity for me to learn Python. It's been a tremendous opportunity for me to give back to the community. Um, it's been, it's opened doors for me in terms of just personal relationships. It's gotten me at least one job. Um, I walked into a, a company, a very well-known company, um, and they started interviewing me and I said, by the way, you know, I wrote Analyze NFT and the interview essentially stopped being about me and much more about here's what you'd be doing working for us. Um, and I was on another incident response investigation with another very well-known company and the team showed up and I'm looking at what they're doing. It's like, wait, you're running analyze MFT. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, that's cool. 
um, it'd be nice if I got paid for that, but that, <laughs> it doesn't. I didn't write it to get paid. The fact that this really well-known company was using it as something that I wrote out of just, hey, this is a good thing to do, um, was an incredible reward. And so I, 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 I think that other people, I'd like to see other people giving back to the community in a similar way. Write tools or extend existing tools and don't do it for money. Do it because it's something that you find challenging. It's an opportunity to learn something about digital forensics artifacts and about how to uh, write code to make best use of that. And if you want to be more pragmatic, it's a great way of helping potential employers or clients understand, hey, you really know what you're talking about. You're really invested in the community and you're willing to step up and get things done. Um, if I'm hiring people, that's the sort of behavior I'm looking for. I want somebody who's passionate about uh, the community and passionate about understanding the data because if we don't understand the data, it's hard to get to the right answers. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing that I, I try to coach people on and mentor on today is say, well, you know, how do you get started in this and what do you do? And it's like, well, you just kind of pick up and you, you try to find a find a problem that interests you and and just dig into it. Um, and I'm sure, you, you know, as you know, there's, you know, like, it's cool to see your name in certain things. Like, I, I remember going through some of the SANS courses and seeing Analyze MFT talked about it and David Kovar's name. And I was like, that's cool. I remember when David posted on a forum, he was going to tackle this problem and, and start building it and see the timeline as it grew out of that. So it's really quite, you know, there's, there's other ways to kind of get rewarded from that. And I think that's what some people might miss in their career paths is, you know, if you just jump in and develop something, you give back, it, it comes back to you 10, 20 20, 30 fold. And, and that's absolutely, that's so very true. And if you're looking for quick wins to get in the community, I don't really think there are any. What really pays off for a lot of people I know is that they, they got into the community and some, via some mechanism and they just over time demonstrated a consistent, steady hand at doing really good work for their customers or their clients or their the company they're working for, but also giving back to the community. And this is something, this is a message I'd give to organizations as well. Empower your people to give back to the community. And Ernst & Young, I really like working for the firm. Um, they, they generally have a fairly restrictive policy on who can speak for the firm, but that what we worked out was that I could go out and speak about they they made they understood that I was investing time in doing analyze MFT and some other things, and I wouldn't go out and represent the firm. I would talk about here's what I am doing for benefit to the community, you know, sharing lessons learned, sharing code, and things like that. And I would give thanks to Ernst and Young for enabling. Uh, me to be here today. You know, they wouldn't pay for the travel or anything like that, but it still reflected well on the firm and it gave back to the community. So if your organization cannot actively support somebody and say, look, this is a, you know, XYZ company employee representing what we're doing at a conference, at least allow them the latitude to go do cool things and go talk about it. It's phenomenal for employee retention. Um, yeah, it, it's certainly yeah. good marketing. I mean, that's again, it's going to come out and show. And we, we, it's a small community. We all know the IR teams and even the pen test teams that are out there. And we know the ones that speak. We know the ones that present, um, even if they're, you know, they have to do it at the, without the full sanction of their company. But you, you get to know who those people are pretty quickly. And they, and they reflect well on those organizations. And so when you're looking for a new job, you know, you will think positively about those organizations. You'll think, hey, look, you know, that guy that you know gave this really cool presentation that I enjoyed speaking to works for that company. I should go talk to them. Um, and so it's it, it pays, it really benefits the company, though in a somewhat indirect way. Yeah, and I think there's, uh, and, and what people are don't realize now, they're afforded a lot of opportunities now with social media and forums. There's, it's, there's a ton of problems out there that people are always asking questions on. You know, listen to those questions and, and go find solutions and, and post your findings. You'll you'd be surprised how much love you'll get back from the community on that. And that that's spot on. And uh, that's I, that's 
really how I got my start. Um, there was a forum, there still is, it's a viable forum called Forensic Focus. I think that's where we and first met. <laughs> I think it is. And I think there are a couple other people we know that we first yeah. met there. And it was, it's a well-run forum. They cover education, they cover certification, they cover a whole lot of different things. And it was a safe space to go talk about things. And if people ask questions, it was okay to go answer, you know, with a partial answer. It's like, you know, in my limited experience, here's what I saw and people encourage that. And so that helped people grow. And it's kind of like B sides, but you know, online, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, it's a small tight community of people that are supporting each other and encourage growth and encourage experience and maturation and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great, and that's where I found I was able to you know, there'd be a question posted and I was like, oh, I'm going to go research that. And there's, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, it was a great channel to learn things, but also give back. So, you know, you now kind of taken a little bit of a different path, but still within security and forensics, but now started Kovar and Associates with a focus on you know, unmanned aerial vehicle or UAV analysis. How did, how did you kind of end up <laughs> down that path? <laughs> um, I had to work over a holiday season a couple of years ago because, uh, when while we take holidays, the uh, adversaries um, oftentimes find that to be a great time to uh, execute attacks. So I uh, had about a month off in January. Um, I bought myself a Phantom Two for Christmas, and I had about three days of good weather when I was living in Illinois. So I went out and flew for three days, and the weather closed in. It's like, all right, what am I going to do for another three and a half weeks? And there's this digital device sitting at my desk. It's like, okay, this thing's got to have data. It turned out to have a wealth of data, um, and it was one of those intellectual and investigative challenges that I referred to earlier, and it's also similar to the, you know, go find a problem you're passionate about and start working on it, and that's a great way of giving back to the community and promoting yourself. Um, so I started doing that uh, sort of as a sideline while I was still doing incident response for Ernst Young. Um, I gave, I updated the presentation uh, twice now. So started the Phantom 2, then Phantom 3, and most recently uh, did uh, a, more of a first responder look at it. Um, I started looking at tools for it. And now uh, we're doing a couple of different things. So we have a suite of tools called URSA, Unmanned and Robotic Systems Analysis Tools. Um, right now it's mostly in-house, but we're working on developing it so it's commercially viable. We're talking to the federal government about grants. It's a whole, that's a whole different conversation. Um, but it also turns out that um, in understanding the nature of the data on not just a UAV, but the entire U what they call UAS, or unmanned aerial system, which includes the mobile device, which includes uh, cellular transmissions, includes all these other things, um, I was applying my cybersecurity experience to uh, the problem. And now I find myself uh, being interviewed for UAS cybersecurity. So in some of the major conferences and things like that. So we're, we're doing investigations for some federal government agencies. We're working on developing the ability to help out local and state uh, law enforcement agencies. Um, and we're trying to find a way of doing that uh, at very low cost to them. And that's why the federal grants, but it's a hugely interesting problem. Uh, we're in a niche within a niche within a niche and very much enjoying being there. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a there's a little bit of a misconception uh, that that I would say when people I talk talk to, so just kind of a empirical discussions with people that they don't they still think it it is kind of a, a hobbyist type of thing, recreational, and don't realize the commercial and and soon obviously the government implications of what how it's being adopted as a technology. Um, would you agree? And do, do you think it's, it's something that's kind of at the cusp? Like, where are we in the growth cycle of this, where it's going to be then something that people might say, oh, wow, this is a, this is a real thing. So that was one of my biggest challenges. Um, uh, and I, I, we're, we're fine. I, I put, put a tweet out, um, like a couple of days ago saying, you know, DFIR on the DFIR hashtag, you know, UAS forensics is now a thing. Um, it really now finally is, but for the first three years I was talking about it, I'd be going to HTCIA, uh, local meetings and conferences and things like that, and a whole lot of people would attend because they were interested, but none of them really said, hey, we got it. this is a real problem we're trying to solve. And 
as recently as a couple months ago, I was talking to a law enforcement agency saying, you know, we've got these UAVs in the evidence storage and we don't know what to do with them. So we put them out on auction and we just auctioned them off. So they didn't even understand enough about them to wipe them before they sold them. Um, so <laughs> that's been a challenge. But now uh, I've been speaking to DHS. I've been speaking to DOD. Um, I've been speaking to NYPD. Um, I'm going to Interpol to give a presentation in October. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service has got a really big uh, push within their organization for not only what they call counter UAS or how to neutralize UAVs that are interfering with their operations, but also how to go investigate those. So a lot of different people are finally understanding that it's a thing. Um, I think that the reason... So we've been seeing UAVs flying contraband into prisons for a while. That didn't really get people's interest um, sufficiently. I think that's what's really finally pushed it is that ISIS and other uh, non-state or terrorist actors are using modified UAVs, consumer-grade UAVs, to deliver munitions on the battlefield. So they're doing aerial surveillance. Uh, they're doing mission planning with them and they're doing weapons delivery. And so I think that the DOD in particular and then other agencies following along in their footsteps have realized that, hey, this is a real problem. We need to be able to address it. Um, and one of the federal agencies I'm working with um, articulated to me that they saw the DOD being slow in developing these capabilities and they as an agency don't want to be caught out. They don't want to be in a responsive manner. They want to be in a proactive, ready to handle this problem position. Yeah, and it's it's you know somewhat of a pun intended. At, you know, I don't want to say, well, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. But <laughs> is, <laughs> yep. is 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 there a real threat out there um, that these things can be weaponized or used in ways, even just for recon and surveillance, on you know maybe an institution? itself, you know, commercial institution or government entity in the United States by, you know, whether it be non-state sponsored threat actors, uh, homegrown issues. I mean, are, are, is, it a, is it a real viable threat that we're maybe not thinking through enough? I think domestically, the odds are of somebody using a weaponized UAV to commit a terrorist act are relatively low, um, primarily because there are easier ways of delivering um, a weaponized payload of any sort. Um, you know, driving a car into a crowd, for example, is a much easier thing to do than to fly a UAV carrying some sort of uh, weaponized or aerosolized uh, uh, material. Um, that said, I also believe at some point in time somebody's going to do it. What I think is much more likely, and I believe to be happening right now, is uh, industrial espionage, um, you know, scouting out uh, critical infrastructure and things like that. Um, as an example, I've talked to people in the energy sector and also in the entertainment industry, I think major studios, that have found a variety of UAVs on their property over a period of time and they're not sure how they got there. So my message to those organizations is that there are ways of extracting data from those UAVs and extracting that data and understanding it can give you some really good insights into whether it was malicious activity or whether it was just somebody, hey, they flew too near the facility and lost track of it. And that is a very important thing to do. So it's a part of going off and understanding the problem so you can properly respond to it. Do you have a real threat? Okay, now you can start using honest, actual data. You can start developing a program for countering that threat. Or are these all just hobbyist UAVs that somebody get lost over your property? In which case, you, know, you now take a disc different approach. I would like to think, I, I would be inclined to believe that if you are a major Hollywood studio and you're finding UAVs on your lot, that somebody from TMZ or somebody trying to figure out what the script is going to be is flying over your property and you should probably do something about it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's, again, it's one of those things where, where people are 
just don't appreciate what these things can do. And what what are some of the data points or data collection things that a UAV can really kind of uh, gather that could be valuable to somebody uh, that people should be, I guess, kind of concerned about? So DEF CON and uh, Black Hat will love to show off, hey, we can fly a Wi-Fi sniffer or something else over this property. Um, and those are real threats. Um, the UAV is a essentially aerial pickup truck. Um, it gives you the ability to extend your reach in a somewhat covert manner. So whatever payload or whatever tool you're accustomed to deploying uh, for an attack and pen exercise or simply adversarial purpose, um, you can now extend your reach using it. Uh, the, however, the primary sensor that is of value to a attacker is most likely a standard camera sensor. So if they're looking at physically breaching a perimeter, um, it's phenomenal for figuring out where cameras are, what patrol cycles look like, where your fences are, what your doors are, things like that. Um, there's also, and so I'm gonna, there's also the data that's getting collected. So you're, you've got a test crop, for example, and so you're applying, you've got some sort of GMO seed, and you're applying some sort of new uh, type of herbicide to it. Um, it's going to be valuable to your competitors to see how well that crop is performing under those conditions. Um, or you've got a test track up in Michigan where you're testing out your new suspension or engine or whatever. It's valuable to somebody, whether it's a news organization um, or your competitors, see how well that test is going. Um, and there, I can come up with lots of examples like that. Um, it's there, I've also seen examples where um, activist groups are using UAVs to go look at whether somebody's illegally dumping uh, hazardous chemicals on their property. So you could also see somebody using a UAV to mount some sort of gas sensor to see whether the smokestack at a particular facility, what, what, what it was actually emitting. So there are a lot of, it's really about extending the range of your existing sensors onto somebody else's property. Hmm. And, you know, obviously we've seen that companies like Amazon want to adopt it as a technology for delivery, um, which raises certainly a lot of concerns when they say there's going to be a lot of these things in the airspace. Do you think that there's going to be, do you think one, there's going to be more government regulation of these and two, is it necessary? Um, there, there will be more government regulation and as long as we don't have what we call a compelling event, I believe that that regulation will evolve in a fairly reasonable, though jerky manner towards something that makes a lot of sense. Um, the things that are going to complicate the regulations are, one, if we have some sort of terrorist activity using a UAV or some really flagrant accident where a UAV gets ingested by a jet engine causing the engine to flame out and, you know, not a, not no fatalities, but causes the jet to, you know, conduct an emergency landing. Those sorts of events are going to have a dramatically chilling effect on the industry and will result in a lot of regulation. The other challenge I see is that some of those big organizations that want to do delivery are trying to put forward regulations that will benefit them but will potentially affect all, a lot of other UAS and manned aircraft. So, for example, there was a uh, proposal put forward by one of the big companies where essentially everything from 500 feet to 1,000 feet would be for UAS delivery only, and no one else was allowed to fly in that space. So carving out you know, over the entire United States a swath of the airspace for just one set of people working. And that would be a phenomenal asset to them. It's like carving out chunks of the uh, radio frequency spectrum. It's like, right. you know, you give somebody all the cellular bandwidth, it's like, okay, that means no one else can use it and they've got a lock. And so somebody's trying to do that in national airspace. So that's a huge problem. The, the other regulatory problem right now, right now, is that the FAA is trying to figure out what they can regulate and enforce, um, and local jurisdictions and state jurisdictions are filling in gaps or they're responding to the public. 
And so we're getting this mishmash of overlapping or conflicting uh, laws and regulations that make it difficult for an operator who's flying in multiple areas to comply with all of those. And that, it needs to get sorted out probably in the courts, unfortunately. Is there any um, organizations or groups that are working, whether on, you know, maybe state or you know, national levels that are trying to guide those discussions, you know, kind of things like we've seen with IOT devices and uh, I and the cavalry, they're trying to say, okay, we're, we're, we're into this community. We want to help guide the regulation. Are there similar things happening within this space where people are trying to be more active and not just waiting for regulations to be handed to them? There are. Unfortunately, at the moment, uh, they all, I, all the ones, well, the most of the ones I can think of are vendor backed. Um, and so the vendors are obviously have an interest in opening up their space, but um, they all also have their own perceptions and biases. Um, there are, I'm, I'm, I'm also on the national council for public safety UAS. Um, so we are trying to represent all of the public safety UAS users for working with the FAA and other agencies to put forward good policy. So a little bit, not vendor, uh, not vendor oriented, you know, we have a bias obviously for public safety, but, um, that's out there. Uh, there are FAA uh, panels and council and organizations within the FAA that are working on aspects of this. Um, but though, there's not really anything like I am the Calvary. And actually, one of the things, now that you reminded me, I should really reach out to them because in many ways, UAS, UAS, UAVs are not that different from a lot of other things that they're already addressing. Um, a UAV has a computer on board, flight controller, um, they've got a bunch of sensors, barometer, camera, GPS, things like that. They've got an onboard network. Um, they've got the you know internet connection, essentially. Um, they look a lot like an IoT device. It just happens to be airborne. And that's one of the things that I try to talk to policymakers and regulators and legislators is like, don't carve out some special regulation or law for a UAS unless you absolutely have to. Look at what existing policies you already have or existing laws you already have that might apply to this technology that's similar to something you're already working with. No, oh, that sounds like a great approach. Um, now, certainly, you, you've is, is aside from the technology, you've you've had to start your own company to do all this, and <laughs> I know you've done this several times. And you know, we talked a little bit before we hit record about some of the challenges. So, you know, I, I've started several ventures myself, but it's always that that thing where people say, Hey, you know, why don't you go start a company? And while it sounds great and it is, um, or starting a practice within another company, what are some of the challenges that people might not account for when they decide to kind of start their own thing? So the, the easy one that people usually do account for is, okay, it's going to take me a while to generate revenue. So how am I going to pay for things? So that's a classic entrepreneurial problem. Uh, one of the things that people don't often think about is public perception. So you and I and a whole bunch of other people we know use Twitter and or Facebook or pick your social media outlet. Um, I am uh, sometimes a little bit outspoken and that when it's just me, yeah, okay, so some people don't like me, no big deal. When that's me doing individual consulting, it's like, oh wait, that could potentially affect my revenue because some client may get turned off that I'm not aware of. And then when I'm actually running a company and I've got people working for me, it's even more important because, hey, if I go irritate or alienate people that are important to our success, it not only affects my livelihood, it affects the people I'm working with. So learning how to be more diplomatic and more thoughtful in how you're engaging and who you're engaging with is a important but hard lesson to learn. And it's also part of public relations in general. Uh, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, B-sides and going to presentation conferences and things like that. You know, you can, be, you can have the world's greatest technology or re world's greatest service, but if people aren't aware of what you're doing and why they should work with you, it doesn't matter. And I am an awful sales guy and I'm not really a good marketing person. Um, I've always been, you know, I'll, I'll be who I am. I'll do what I do. And, you know, eventually people will come to me because they understand I'm, I'm doing good stuff. 
that has that works. But when when you're when you're trying to stand up a company, you've got to be much more out there, and you've got to do it in a way that resonates with not just your targeted clients, but people who work for your targeted clients or people who otherwise might be influential in helping you be successful, people who might introduce you to somebody. Um, and that takes a lot of effort in terms of developing how you present to people, um, how you communicate, uh, how you think about things, how you contribute. Um, and it's not something you can do overnight. You can't just go to Toastmasters for a couple of weeks and say, okay, now I know how to do public speaking. Um, so that's, I think one of the more important skills to learn and things to be aware of because it does take time to develop and it does take thoughtfulness. Um, you're, what you're doing here is a very good example. You've, you've established this podcast and you've established a brand and you've established the fact that this is a consistently good um, a podcast to listen to. And that is reflecting well upon not just you as an individual, but upon the nature of the organization that you are running. And it gets people to think about, hey, I should go engage with these guys. And it's, it, it's just incredibly important. Yeah, it, it really, you know, it's always, it was, I think somebody early, 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 early in my actually consulting career said, you know, you gotta, you have to give to get, <laughs> and yeah. that's the best, that's the best form of PR. So even if you are challenged with sales or, or, or marketing skills, if you just go out there and contribute some way, it, it does, does pay itself back. But one of the things I found too was, uh, how often when you do start your own thing, or even I would say, even as you get more senior within an organization and you're managing more teams and you're managing a P&L, that you get further pulled away from some of the, the tactile work that you might enjoy doing. How do you find you balance that, <laughs> you know, the administrative, all the other aspects of running a business with the hands-on stuff that keeps you excited? Uh, this is a challenge that, I, that came up oftentimes when I was with Ernst & Young, um, and it's something I mentored a lot of people on there and elsewhere. A lot of us want to keep being hands-on keyboard. You know, this is what makes us, we're passionate about doing this work. It's challenging. Fundamentally, you got to think about what your ultimate objective is. If your ultimate objective is to solve that incident for the client in an efficient, accurate manner, or you're, you're responsible for the company's you know, bottom line, or you're growing your own company, where is the best application of your skill set? And once you start developing that level of maturity and that level of experience, the answer to that question is often growing and empowering and mentoring the people to go be the hands on the keyboard people that you trust to go get that job done for you. You want to be the person who is putting together and running that high performing team. And in incident command system, emergency response area, we, what we say is that you can't really manage more than seven people. And that once you stop managing the people and you actually go put your hands on a keyboard or on a fire hose or whatever, that team falls apart. So if you're responsible for P&L or you're responsible for growing the company and you find that you're actually down writing code or responding to an incident and everybody else that's reporting to you isn't getting the direction that they need to be moving everything forward, you're doing everybody a disservice. So there are opportunities in some companies to be an individual contributor. And if that's really what you want to do, formally make a request to be an individual contributor. If, you, if your career path is taking you in a way that you now need to manage people, profits, all the rest of it, accept that and use your position to hire to mentor, to educate, to give people the experience they need to help the entire organization be successful. And I cannot stress enough letting go and empowering others. If you empower others and they are successful at breaking into a system because they're doing attack and pen or finding the critical uh, piece of evidence in an incident response investigation, and you see them just light up because they did that, that is oftentimes more rewarding than doing it yourself. Yeah, I found the same thing. And I also found that my learning curve uh, for some of these things, 
increases. You know, I, I'll never be the best pen tester. I, there, there's only so much I can do with Metasploit before I just either crash my own system or contacted. <laughs> but you know, when I work with my good pen testers and I kind of I'll hang with them and I'm managing the project, I'm seeing what they're doing. I get an incredible amount of feedback very quickly from them of here are the here are the steps we took. I'm like, okay, I get it now. I don't have to actually go through the 60 hours to figure that out myself. I, I can learn that and reporters spending time with them. So you do get that ability to get some, uh, some amazing feedback uh, and learn from your team if, when you kind of let go a little bit. And, and that comes back to something I've said a couple of times during our conversation. I really believe in high performing teams. I really believe in getting the right people, training them, empowering them, you know, helping them all figure out how to work together, giving them good challenges. It, I've done this in search and rescue, emergency management, and incident response, and now building my own company. There's no greater joy for me. There's no greater reward for me than seeing the people that I work with that we have grown together in building this team. There's no greater reward or joy than seeing them succeed. Yeah, and it's something I think uh, from the who's actually the first podcast I did with uh, Chris Pogue, but he said, you know, you're not a you're not a leader till you've built another leader. That that's spot on. Yeah, and so David, where where can people find you today? What where where can they find you on Twitter and the interwebs? <laughs> uh, so the company website is uh, www.covar k o v is in Victor a r l l c dot com, and that talks about our UAS forensic analysis. I am at DC Kovar on Twitter, and that's probably the easiest place to talk uh, to find me. And uh, if they, people are really interested and about what we're doing, they happy they're welcome to reach out via email, which you can find on our site, uh, or I'm DC Kovar at kovarllc.com. And if you got sort of on the more personal side, emergency response, search and rescue, I'm dkovar at gmail.com. And as I told a bunch of law enforcement officers the other day. Um, if you've got an issue with UAS and you're just not sure what to do, you want to bounce it off somebody, reach out. Um, we're passionate about doing this sort of stuff, and we're always happy to talk about it. I swear I learn more by people asking good or interesting or new questions than I do by doing my own research. So I really encourage people to reach out. Great. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to seeing what we can all do. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.